kids are making their way out. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Psalm 90. Life with a sigh and a song. 
this is not a, a typical passage coming out of Thanksgiving weekend. Did you pick up on that? Right? Some of you are thinking, well, Barrett's never going to be invited over to Thanksgiving dinner. This is right, maybe not typical in terms of what you would expect coming out of uh, coming out of Thanksgiving, but I think it works for at least a couple reasons. Number one, um, Psalm 90 is appropriate coming off of a Thanksgiving holiday uh, simply because not everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Shocker. Some of the people here with us today, sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you, may not have had a great Thanksgiving. In fact, Thanksgiving may have exacerbated for them some of the struggles or some of the issues that they're already dealing with. Loss of a family member, poor health, financial difficulties, chaotic, hectic pace of life. Right? It only gets increased by bringing 20, 30 people into your home. And the church, at least at its best, should have ways in which to be able to deal with sort of both sides of the coin, right? On the one hand, to be able to rejoice and yet at the same time not recoil away in horror when things are not perfect and sunshiny. The other reason a song like this works is because whether this was your best Thanksgiving or not, whether you're in the high time or the low time, a Psalm 90, especially the heart of Psalm 90, verses 3 through 12, which is the bulk of the psalm, as bleak as what it is, essentially what it does is it provides something of a backdrop by which we can better appreciate the blessings that we do have. So, what I'm going to try to do is work through Psalm 90, just moving along the lines of the stanzas. So verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 through 12, and then verses 13 through 17. And then at the end, after seeing how we learn or how we see the person of God, His character, His work in this, hopefully then go one more step and say, this is how we see Christ through Psalm 90. So I hope that at the end of the day, ultimately what a passage like this does, is as we just sort of camp out here this morning, uh, that there is great encouragement for those who need it. That there is sort of a, a sobering effect also for those who need it. And that we essentially walk out of here with this wise, balanced view of life in a fallen and broken world. So, verses 1 and 2. Notice that Moses is the one who is said to have penned this psalm. We'll come back to this in a minute. I think that's important. But at the outset, what you need to take note of is that the psalm starts off in verses 1 and 2 describing God in two ways. Number one, he's described as our home. And number two, he's described as eternal, from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. God, the eternal home. If you don't hear anything else in the rest of the sermon, hear this. This is something to grab hold of, and this is something to cling to all through the days of your life. 
See, Moses writes this, most likely in the wilderness, with disgruntled people, with not the best working environment, with a lot of stress, with a lot of testing, with a lot of temptation, wandering around, living out of their tents. But Moses can say, from generation to generation, including this generation, even though we wander around like nomads without a home, in fact, we do have a home, God himself. And this is important because all of us know, who've had the opportunity to experience life in the highs and the lows, we know that this world, that this life, does not always come with a very warm, homey feel to it. If you're trying to, to feel comfortable or make your home or feel satisfied in this world, in this life, you're going to be sorely disappointed. So some of you today would do well to think to meditate even on this opening brief stanza. To think that even while it seems like your life is spinning out of control, at the end of the day, the God who sets the planets of our solar system spinning in orbit, yet so that they never collide, that's the person that you run to, to find rest at the end of the day. Right? When you feel like you're about to be overwhelmed by the problems of life, that they're going to sweep in on you like a flood and you're just going to drown in them. Your home is the God who set the boundaries on the ocean tide and says, no more. Your God is a firm foundation. Your God is a rock. He is a strong tower. He is a dwelling place for his people from eternity past into eternity future. See, the, the encouragement here, before going into the sobering part of 3 through 12, is that this has to be locked down. You have to be grounded on this, or you're going to fall to pieces in verses 3 through 12. You have to know that for all the changes, all the fluctuations, all the ups and downs, the craters, the pits, the traps, the miseries that we encounter in life, and they're inevitable, you have to know that there is something more permanent, more stable, more sure than the circumstances of life. And that's the God who bought you. That's the God who created you. And he invites you to come and to find rest and to find protection and to find security in him. So God is our eternal home or the eternal home. But verses 3 through 12, he's the eternal home for a cursed people. If you look at verses 3 through 12, you can't read these verses without coming away with the idea that this is a very bleak view of life. At the time that Moses scratched out this prayer or this song, he is not the one you want at your holiday party. <laughs> Major down. 
And so as you go through, Moses basically paints life. Essentially, if you, if you could sum it up, I think what Moses is getting across is life is short and life is hard. And then you die. But see, the, the, the point to take away from this, the, the brevity of life, the difficulty, the strains of life, Moses tells us why that is. He says it, for example, in verse 7. After talking about, in verses 3 through 6, the fact that, uh, that it's God who turns us back into dust. He made us from dust. He turns us back into dust. We're like the plants or the grass of the field that's here one minute and gone the next. We're so transient. We don't last. We're not permanent. He tells us why this is in verse 7. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. That's why life is so short. And why life can be so hard and miserable. Namely, because we're suffering under the curse. And the curse is not just some random act. Some... What? Misfortune that we encounter. The curse is something that is from God Himself that has been leveled against the people that He created. Starting all the way back at the very beginning with our ancestors, Adam and Eve. Because of their sin and disobedience and because of their rebellion, they and the entire creation is placed under a curse. And then, if we're understanding the scope of Scripture rightly, I think what Scripture goes on to show is that from that point on, everyone who traces their lineage back to Adam and Eve, which is all of us, all of us, from the point of conception to our dying day, are born under that curse. We are born cursed before we, can, before we do anything. Because... We bear the taint of sin. But then it gets even more gloomy because Scripture says not only do we deserve the curse that we're born into, we also then, of our own choosing, of our own actions, we also earn God's wrath and displeasure on our own. We're doubly cursed, as it were. So the hardships and the miseries of life, the testings, the trials, the fatigue, everything that comes with it, is there because we deserve it. Now, here's the thing. Do not, do not, do not try to sanitize or lighten verses 3 through 12. Right? Don't, don't look at verses 3 through 12 and say, oh, well, that's, that's what life was like back in the Old Testament before Jesus. Now we're in the New Testament era with Jesus and everything that comes with it. Because you read verses 3 through 12 and you know that what Moses is talking about here is universally true for everyone at all times and all places. 
70, 80 years. Just the most that we can hope for. By the time you get to the end of 70 or 80 years, you're ready for it to be done because it's gotten so hard and so tiresome. The world says, look, because of the fact that we know instinctively that all of this wears down, that we ourselves wear down, we've got to find a way to deal with this uncomfortable truth, this unpleasant reality. And so the world says, we need to find something else to think about. Push it out of our minds, ignore it. Find something else to take our attention. And Moses says just the opposite. Moses says, in verse 12, in light of the fact that life is so short, that we are so weak and transient, that it's so hard, Moses says that wisdom is not pushing it out of your mind and trying to think of something better. Think happy thoughts. Moses says the wise thing to do is to actually embrace that, to internalize it, and to set your life accordingly. Teach us to number our days so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. I'm going to throw a quote up from an old dead guy, Blaise Pascal. Scientist, mathematician, little philosopher on the side. Very insightful things that he said in his work, uh, Pensees. I think it's French, and I don't know any French, so I'm just going to say it the four seven way. Pensees? Pensees? Just means thoughts. He, went, he goes through life and he just, he just writes down random thoughts. And eventually it was collected and printed, and some of it's pretty insightful, some of it's just like, well, oh, that's a just whatever comes to his mind. This is particularly poignant, I think, in light of what Psalm 90 says. Here's what Pascal says. He says, to be happy, there we go. To be happy, man would have to make himself immortal. But not being able to do so, it has occurred to him to prevent himself from thinking of death. The only thing which consoles us for our miseries is diversion. And yet this is the greatest of our miseries, for it is this which principally hinders us from reflecting upon ourselves and which makes us insensibly ruin ourselves. Without this, without this diversion or distraction, we should be in a state of weariness, and this weariness would spur us to seek a more solid means of escaping from it. But diversion amuses us and leads us unconsciously to death. If that doesn't encapsulate the whole spirit and vibe of Western culture right now, I don't know what does. Do you, do, you, do you know how many distractions and diversions there are that ultimately our otherwise tired and weary hearts would have to find something else to focus on if it, if it weren't for there. All I need for distraction, this and a thumb. <laughs> Scroll. Gotta see what's happening on the Facebook feed. Gotta see what all the Twitter rotty are saying. 
New Netflix series to binge. Another vacation around the corner. New promotion to gun for. Extracurricular activity for the kids. Distraction, diversion, busyness. When was the last time any of us ever, I don't know, sat in a room with no TV, no radio, no phone, and thought? Right, to even suggest that sounds strangely odd and bizarre at this point in time, right? What, what are you talking about? You just sit on the couch and think? Nobody does that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Christians above all people should have categories for this, for the hardships, for the difficulties of life. Listen, because of the fact that we are born into a cursed world, because of the fact that we bear the effects of the curse ourselves, because we are sinners, we should not be surprised when we see things breaking down around us. When my body doesn't work right, physically, emotionally, what else do I expect? When relationships disintegrate and fall apart, estrangement comes, I break my back trying to get ahead on this issue or that issue, and yet it seems like I just wasted all my time. That's life. And see, here's the thing. In 3 through 12, don't miss this. I think what Moses is doing, he is presenting this as the rule, not the exception. Do you, do you see that? In other words, Moses is saying, this is what life is. Why would you get wrapped up in, in that kind of life? The church used to do very well with this. And it still does, but it becomes harder for us to do it based on just the way society and culture goes. Like even in the songs that we sing, <coughs> Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. That's a hymn. You ever sung it? You ever even heard of it? Nah, too sad, too depressing. Oh God, our help in ages past. I need thee every hour. Abide with me. Right? Those, those kind of things. If God has seen fit to give us passages like this so that his people have something to latch onto when they're confronted with the hardships and difficulties of life, I keep, in other words, when God says it's okay to groan, Sometimes the, the best, most spiritual thing to do is just that, to groan under the weight and the burden of a broken world. Not to try to wish it all away with positive thinking. But in the third stanza, God is this eternal home for a cursed people who, nevertheless, are comforted by His kindness. 
It's beautiful the way that this, that this works itself out in terms of the vocabulary that, that Moses uses. Verse 3 starts off with this statement that says, You turn man back into dust. And say, return, O children of men. Turn, return. Right? In verse 13, when he moves into the last stanza, he uses the same Hebrew verb to express what he wants God to do now. Okay, God, verse 3, you turn us back into dust. Because we rightly live under your curse. But he doesn't end it that way. Verse 13. Okay, so even though you turn us back into dust, will you do something for Will you at least turn to us and be kind? And listen, people. This is not wishful thinking on the author's part. Right? This is Scripture. This is God's Word. He gives us this as if to say... Even when you're in the thick of verses 3 through 12 and things are falling apart, you're being confronted with your own frailty, your own mortality, either because of relationships or physical difficulties, financial woes, whatever it is. Even when that's happening, you can still pray this. Even though you know your life is short, even though you know that it will be hard at times, you can still pray, God, will you please turn and show me your kindness. Notice, just to get sort of the impact of this. Notice the request. All, all of these come in rapid, rapid fire in verses 13 through 17. This is what Moses, this is what we, by extension, ask for, and this is what he gives. Moses says, turn and be sorry. Satisfy us with your loving kindness. Make us glad. Show us your work and your glory and establish our work. In other words, don't let us work in vain. Now, laying these two sections side by side says something either about Moses or it says something about God. I'll give you a hint. It says something about God. Okay? Because Moses has just finished in verses 3 through 12 saying all of this weight and heaviness and struggle and striving that goes on in this life, all this, we deserve it. God is right to deal with sin. But then he turns around and after saying this is what we deserve, he now turns around and asks essentially for what we have to say is clearly what we don't deserve. In verses 13 through 17. Right? This is, this is the picture. This is like a man being sentenced to death row. And before he leaves the courtroom, or maybe as he's way on, out, on his way to his cell, he, he hands off a, a laundry list of things that he wants the judge to do for him. Alright, I need this thread count for my sheets on my cot and my cell. And they have to be changed every morning. I'm not going to eat the regular prison food. That's too depressing. You, you're going to need to feed me this. I need the sweet tea. I need the southern barbecue. I need right, all this. I'm going to require 
fresh air, out in the sunlight. I'm going to request that there be no solitary confinement. You say, well, that's insane. And yet that's what Moses is doing here. Why in the world should Moses or us ask for any of this? And notice also that what Moses asked for, I, I don't think, ultimately negates what he's just said in verses 3 through 12. In other words, one thing is to look at and say, oh my gosh, he's just said, here's what we deserve, and yet look at the guts that he has to ask for this. But, even if and when God gives him what he asks for, it's not that it necessarily wipes out verses 3 through 12. In other words, life is still going to be hard. So here's the question. As you think over these things, when Moses says, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, after he's just said, our life withers away and it ends with this wimpy sigh. Is it possible to sigh under the weight of life and yet to be satisfied at the same time? That's what Moses is asking for. He's not asking that the curse be reversed, although that would be nice. He's not assuming that it will. He's just saying, while this is our lot in life, would you be so kind to alleviate that burden with something good. So when we sigh and groan under the burden of life, when we confront death or disease or sickness, it is possible to sigh and to groan and yet to say, but even in the midst of sighing, would you still give me a song? What about the fact that Moses says, what verse is this? Verse 15. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us. Okay, taking that at face value, I think what Moses is saying is, we've been afflicted for X number of years. Make us happy for X number of years. They need to balance out. Right, now think, 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 think. Moses is writing this. Most people think Moses wrote this song either shortly after God told the people that they were going to wander and die in the wilderness because of their sin and disobedience, or maybe Moses wrote it as his own life was nearing the end. I kind of think it, it fits a little bit better with the latter. And Moses is even looking back over his own life and saying, Spent 40 years in the wilderness to come back to Egypt and spend 40 years with these people. And I'm going to die and I'm not going to see what I hope to see. Okay, so here you are. You've spent 40 years in exile in the wilderness alone. And then you spent another 40 years in the wilderness with the Israelites. That's 80 years. Moses does not have another 80 years to live. And yet he says, make us glad according to the days that you've afflicted us. How is God going to do that? Maybe God in his goodness has more days in store for Moses. In other words, 
80 years have been hard years for Moses. 40 years have been hard years for the Israelites wandering who are going to be buried in the desert. But maybe, just maybe, God says, but I have 40 plus years of blessing and goodness and happiness that are coming to you just around the corner. You get what we're driving at? Another life. Better than this present one. And at the end of the day, the better life, the better years, the better days that he has in store for us will overwhelm the short, brief period of hard years that we've spent in the here and now. At the end of the day, it's summed up well. When you consider the fact that at the beginning of Psalm 90, God is presented as the eternal, everlasting home for His people. So that no matter what happens in life, we are dead certain, rock-solid confident that our home, that our protection, that our provision is with Him. And when you end on verses 13 through 17, on the willingness of God to give what is undeserved, to give joy and gladness, to put a song in the mouth of those who are tired and weary, to satisfy we can sum up Psalm 90 this way. One author said it like this. The laments and praises of the Psalms express confidence in the Lord. As He remains the same, even when the circumstances of God's people are continually in flux. The ground for hope lies in the perfections of the Lord. For He is good, upright, full of integrity, righteous, just. Gracious, faithful, loving, compassionate, and forgiving. If your time over Thanksgiving was difficult, it's okay to not like the difficulty. But don't dwell on the difficulty. Dwell on the unchanging nature of the God who has bought you. Amen. If Thanksgiving was great for you, understand that any enjoyment that you did have was not due to you, but to the unchanging nature of God's goodness and mercy to you. He gave you what you did not deserve. Now, let me close. Three ways that we see Christ through Psalm 90. Number one, Jesus has experienced the sorrow that comes with a mortal life. Jesus has experienced the same sorrow that we experience, the same sorrow that's described in Psalm 90. Jesus has encountered that himself. I'm going to give you two verses. Both of them come from Isaiah. Isaiah 49.4 says this. This is a messianic passage. You should hear Jesus talking here. Isaiah 49, 4. But I said, the Messiah said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet, surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. That's Jesus talking. 
It's Jesus who knows what it's like to labor from sunup to sundown and to get to the end of it all and to say, what do I have to show for it? As he hangs on a cross and as he's abandoned by the ones who should know him best. He felt that. Or Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 4, where the Messiah is characterized as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from, from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, even though we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Every sorrow, every sadness, every doubt, every fear that you will experience has already been shouldered by Jesus. Number two, Jesus is the one who secures the hope of a future glory that will swallow up the curse that we presently endure. Jesus secures the hope of a future glory that will swallow up the curse we presently endure. Romans 8, 20 and 21. Paul says, For the creation was subjected to futility, to emptiness, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In verse 20, who is it that subjects creation to futility? God is. God is the one who puts man, who puts creation in verse. But do you, do you notice what Paul says? He subjected it to futility in hope. What hope? In hope that this was not going to be how the story ends. In hope that there was coming a man who would undo what Adam had done. Who would bring blessing instead of a curse. In hope that because of the work of this one who was to come later, all of this world would be remade, rebought. And made new again. With no breakdowns. With no imperfections. No disordered minds or diseases or conflicts. He subjected it to futility and hope. And one of the keys to the Christian life. Is looking at the futility of the world around us. As it stands under the curse. And seeing it with the eyes of faith. So that. In spite of all the futility, we find that our hope actually grows for something better to come. See, if you're not facing up to your own mortality, to the brevity and the hardness of life, why would you ever look for resurrection? You don't need it. Number three. Jesus' resurrection means that our labor is not It feels that way. 
It seems pointless. It seems empty, but it's not. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. 56 through 58. Paul says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil, your toil, you know what toil is? Work, right, are things that you do, you know, you, you work. Toil is the aspect of work that none of us likes, right? It's the exhaustion, it's the fatigue, it's the, the frustrations, it's the pointless. Your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, even though this whole world and your life is struggling under the burden of the curse of sin, because of Jesus, because of the fact that he encountered death himself and then gained the victory over it, and he offers us that kind of resurrection life, nothing that we do now, even while we're suffering under the curse, nothing that we do now is pointless. Young moms, you change a hundred diapers in the course of a day, it's not meaningless. Right? It's toil. But it's not meaningless. Parents, you go through the same lesson with your kids for the 50th time in five days, trying to get it through that little skull of mush, how he's supposed to act or live or respond. It may be hard. It may be toil, but it's not meaningless. Your efforts to win your spouse or a co-worker or to just be a good, sane citizen in a world that's going mad, that is not worthless. It's not pointless. Every single work, every single act, even down to the toil and the tire and the frustration, all of that has been bought by Jesus and it will be worth it in the end. So yes, by all means, recognize the brokenness of this world. Recognize that no thanksgiving, so long as we're not bodily in the presence of Christ, no thanksgiving will ever be perfect. It can't. But as quickly as you remind yourself of that, turn. Turn. Ask Him to turn. Ask for a song. Ask for joy. Ask for happiness. Ask for fulfillment. Ask that your work would not be in vain. Ask that you would see Him working in your family, in your workplace, in your life. And then rejoice because God is good to give you, to give me, to give us far more than anything we could ever hope to deserve. That's the reason to be thankful. Let's pray. Father, your greatness is unmatched. 
you spoke and the world came into existence. By your power, by the word of your Son, you hold all things together. We would not draw another breath, our hearts would not beat another time, were it not for the fact that all of this worked according to your plan and your power. We are born sinful and corrupt. We are born deserving nothing but your judgment, and yet in your kindness you give to us more blessings than we can hope to count. Because you're good. Help us, Father, to continue to live with gratitude and thanks for what it is that you have done for us. To rejoice in all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ in the heavenly places. To rejoice for all the blessings that we enjoy in this year creation, albeit in a broken life and in a mixed up world. As we're confronted and as we're reminded of our own brief time on this earth, would you give us hearts of wisdom? that take in the brevity of this life and use it to the fullest for things that count. Help us not grow weary in well-doing, but to know that in due time we will reap the benefits of our labor because even our work has been bought by your Son. Would you cause your Holy Spirit to encourage and solidify your people? as we get back to the normalcy of life beginning tomorrow. Thank you for the goodness of your word, for the goodness of your character. Amen. As we close out with some corporate singing, we just make an appeal. I don't know if anyone is here who stuff like this may be foreign to you. You, you have no concept of what it means to come to God as a place of rest, as your home. You have no concept of what it means to be able to turn and actually expect that God would hear your prayers or give you anything good. Maybe, sitting here this morning, the Spirit has worked on your heart and mind in such a way that you see that all that you can expect from God is what you read in verses 3 through 12. Judgment, punishment, curse, there's good news for you. For anyone who would turn to Christ, Christ offers to take the curse for them so that they can get all of the blessings of a right relationship with God. You can be brought into right relationship with your Creator and your King, no longer having to fear punishment, no longer having to fear even death. If that's you today, I'll be at the back at the end of the service greeting people as they leave, and I am more than happy to stay here for as long as necessary to talk with you more about that. In the meantime, though, let's sing loud, let's be grateful, let's reflect on all that we have in God today.